It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. Hey, what's going on? Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for listening. Glad you are here. Uh, could the pandemic cause us in America, and more specifically here in North Carolina, uh, cause us to re-examine how we get our beef, our poultry, our pork, our dairy? I'm going to talk with Michael Hardin from the Civitas Institute in a minute. Smithfield and other major meat companies have been declining to furnish detailed information on the number of COVID-19 infections at individual plants. And as of May 22nd, according to the New York Times and the Food and Environment Reporting Network, um, more than 17,000 meat and poultry workers have contracted COVID-19 and more than 60 have died. The New York Times looked at emails and other communications among public health officials uh, and the plants are often the largest employers in their municipalities, and because the officials um, were in many cases unsure of their authority, they were not pressing for the data. And some local health directors, this is a quote from Melissa Packer, who is the assistant health director for Robeson County, North Carolina, where a Smithfield pork plant is located. She told the New York Times, quote, some Local health directors from the counties where there are processing plants expressed some concerns about how the reporting on case totals may negatively impact the relationship that they have built with the management of these companies. For their part, the companies argue that releasing data on testing in their plants, but not in the broader area, would distort the results and make them into villains. <laughs> how? What do you mean distort the data? You mean more than it's being distorted right now when a county reports, you know, 700 cases and everybody thinks, oh my gosh, it's all over the county. When it's not, it's basically all at one plant or all at one nursing home like that. That's important context. I don't know anybody that's going to make the processing plants the villains except people that already want to make processing plants the villains, right? The show is made possible, by the way, by patrons. Go over to the PeteCallenderShow.com. There's a link up there to go to the Patreon page. And if you donate, you get cool stuff. You get access to the live streams that I do. Uh, folks like Shan and Les, David, Paul, John, Brian, Matthew, Green, and Alan, thank you very much for all of your support. Uh, I do appreciate it. We could, we could not do the show without you. Uh, also, the show is made possible by great local businesses like Mattress Man. MattressManStores.com. When I launched the podcast... Uh, Chuck, the owner of Mattress Man Stores, immediately reached out and said, hey, I want to support the show. Just tell me how. That's the kind of guy he is. He has always wanted to be uh, sort of in this community of our uh, of the listeners, of our audience, of us, of the show. And uh, he said, we got to support our neighbors. And this was all before the COVID-19 outbreak. When a local charity needed beds for their shelter, Mattress Man stores gave them the beds. When veterans need jobs, Mattress Man stores hires them. They make a point of hiring veterans. This is the kind of people they are, all the folks at Mattress Man stores. And it's why I've always uh, you know, seen it as an honor to uh, tell you about their business, to be an ambassador for their business. Christy and I bought our mattress from them before I ever advertised for them. Years ago, we bought our bed from them. Uh, at Mattress Man stores, we over on a uh, the one across from the mall, we use that store. They've got four locations in Asheville, 
uh, Arden and Hendersonville. They do ship nationwide. They have uh, five-star delivery service, local white glove free delivery, 120-day comfort guarantee as well. So you're going to like the bed. And if you don't, you can exchange it under the 120-day uh, comfort guarantee window. That's the kind of folks that they are. They got great deals right now for the uh, Memorial Day sale, the free box spring with the purchase of uh, Biltmore mattresses. They've got the free adjustable base with the purchase of select uh, other mattresses. They have 24 months uh, sleep now, pay later, 0% APR financing, so you can finance a new mattress and get to sleeping comfortably and get a good night's sleep. Has it been a while since you've had a good night's sleep? It's probably your mattress. Get a great mattress from Mattress Man at mattressmanstores.com. Experience the difference. Buy local and sleep better. Michael Hardin is the new Director of Agricultural Studies and Outreach for the Civitas Institute. NCCivitas.org is their website, and he joins me now. Mr. Hardin, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, sir. Excited to be here and uh, look forward to the next little while of talking agriculture with you. Yeah, so I, I appreciate it. And um, so first, tell us a little bit about this position, because this is a new position. I saw the press release, what, last month. So you're you're new to the position and the position itself is new. That's exactly right. Uh, brand new. Um, uh, Donald Bryson, the CEO and president of Civitas, along with the board, have been uh, mulling over uh, getting into the agriculture policy space for a long time uh, with it being North Carolina's number one industry and affecting so many folks across the state. Uh, so they made a move recently to uh, to get into that in a big way and uh, asked me to come and join the team and uh, excited to be here. We got a lot of big things planned, a lot of outreach going on, and uh, I think we're going to be able to uh, not only help the agriculture environment and the farmers of the state, but also do it in a way that uh, expands free markets and is uh, beneficial to the taxpayer. Yeah, and you got here just in time for the plague. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly right. All right. So what's your experience in this arena? So I've grown up my entire life uh, dabbling in agriculture. I was raised by a single mom uh, who worked several jobs at a time, so we didn't farm directly, but I uh, had a favorite uncle, like a lot of folks do, that uh, lived over in uh, Graham County, uh, Robbinsville, North Carolina, uh, growing everything from tobacco to had a market garden, uh, grew every kind of livestock and uh, worked his farm with horses and whatnot. So I, I fell in love uh, with agriculture there in the western part of the state. Uh, being from uh, northeast Georgia originally, uh, dabbled in, you know, Future Farmers of America, that whole gamut. Uh, later served in the Georgia House of Representatives, uh, where I was honored to serve on the Agriculture Committee. So I have been involved from everything from grading tobacco in a barn in October, November to uh, sitting uh, in the Georgia House uh, on the Ag Committee, uh, dealing with, uh, of course, billion-dollar agriculture policy. So uh, today, uh, have a little family farm. Uh, don't raise necessarily commodity crops, but try to raise our family's food and uh, provide for our neighbors. So we raise pigs and chickens, uh, cows, uh, have honeybees, draft horses. So uh, we try to provide for ourselves and our family and friends. Uh, so that's pretty much it in a quick nutshell. Yeah. So – this has been, uh, and I guess it's important to differentiate because I like I'm pretty familiar with. I got in laws who have a small farm as well, uh, uh, east of Charlotte, and uh, you know they they raise all sorts of different uh, livestock and they've tried all different types of crops and uh, commodity crops as well. But the uh, they're not the same. When people think farmer, I, I guess they probably think more along the lines of of my in laws or or your experience. But that's not generally right. Like 
the the ones that are having the the problems with this COVID nineteen outbreak um, in these hot spots all around the country. It's it's not the family farms, the the sort of the the pastoral image that people have in their minds of the farms, right? That's not what's happening here, right? That's exactly right. It um, you know it is most definitely impacting um, everyone, but the ones that are the most impacted are the ones that have limited opportunities, like your big poultry and hog producers who literally have a contract to deliver their animals on a specific date to one specific market, i.e. slaughterhouse. Um, you know, I equate this all to, you know, with the progression of the industrialized world and uh, where we are with technology, it's a beautiful thing. And the fact that we can produce uh, food as cheap as we do and efficiently as we do, the downside to it, Pete, is that, uh, you know, we've built a machine that only runs on high octane fuel. And it's, it's a wonderful Ferrari of a machine if you've got the right fuel in it, but anything less than the premium stuff, uh, and it doesn't run right. And that's where we are with our food system and some of the, uh, the problems that we're facing today with, you know, the slaughtering of animals uh, or the euthanizing of animals outside of uh, market consumption and that sort of thing. But, you know, even down to the small guys, like the guy that's raising, you know, five or ten cows a year and wants to sell them to his neighbors directly or some hogs. Uh, the problem that we're facing there is through this efficiency, we've cut out the little guy over the years and made it even more difficult for him to access markets. And so everyone's feeling it in some way or another. Uh, the unfortunate thing is that, um, you know, it's not a it's not a level playing field necessarily as to where the help is directed. Right. It's um, one of the things that shocked me when I started hearing these stories and started reading into why are you slaughtering all of these uh, cows or pigs and not giving them to people to eat. It seems insane to me. Uh, and then you, you get into some of the details and they like, they literally grow so big. The animals do that. They don't fit into the, the, the shoots anymore. And so they've become too fat to kill, which sounds like a perverse James Bond parody, you know, but they're, <laughs> sure. yeah, they're, yeah. It, it like you've designed this entire efficiency system and now it doesn't work. If, if, if one thing goes wrong, it seems like. That's that's exactly right. And so not only do you not have, you know, as you mentioned, and you're you're right on point, the facilities, you know, for a market hog are are uh, designed in a way that uh, can slaughter and produce uh, thousands of hogs a day. But they have to be somewhere between that 220 and 260 pounds uh, live weight. And the downside is that you can, you know, on the on the diet rations and all the science that these veterinarians are putting into the feed ratios and whatnot, you got pigs that can gain two or three pounds a day. So they're very quickly getting outside of that uh, 220 to 260 market weight. And the same with poultry. I mean, poultry is even more. You're talking about uh, commercial chicken uh, that's, you know, raised to slaughter weight in like six weeks or uh, six to nine weeks. Uh, you know, every day there is a day that can literally just uh, not only put them outside of that range, but make it unhealthy for the animal, not to mention uh, going back to the pigs for a second, you know, outs, even if they had the facilities to produce and uh, to slaughter animals over that weight, uh, you know, once they get beyond the 250 pound mark, most of the weight that they're putting on is fat and not muscle. And the, the economy of today is not looking for lard pigs like our grandparents wanted. Uh, they're wanting that lean white pork. And so uh, uh, it's you're right. It's uh, it's a new day. No doubt. So there was a story in Fox News. Um, I guess they were quoting actually the News and Observer, uh, 170 million to 190 million chickens and turkeys in North Carolina, and farmers had to euthanize about what one one percent, one and a half percent of the total population. So like like a million and a half chickens had to just be 
slaughtered, and that's just because what they're they're too big to to kill too. That's that's exactly right. Um, the the chickens of today are you know when our grandparents let chickens run around the yard and and killed them, uh, you know these chickens were having to get to four or five months um, to uh, to get to slaughter weight today with the efficiencies of selective breeding and the feed ratios and the fact that they can manipulate the lighting in these houses, uh, you've got chickens going to market in, you know, as little as eight or nine weeks. And mm. so every day is like, you know, years in the life of a chicken. Um, and so, uh, the, the chickens too, they, they don't stop growing. And so, uh, they can get to a point where they, uh, they start having some physical issues and whatnot. So, uh, you know, you bring up a very good point and I wish that the, uh, the, the sources that you cited had caught what you did. Uh, we are only talking, you know, one to possibly three uh, percent of of the market. I mean, you've got chicken houses that twenty thousand birds per house. A lot of farmers probably average four houses, so at any given time, they have eighty thousand chickens on their place, uh, and they're going through those every, you know, ten weeks. Um, so they've got five batches or so a year. So we're not talking about a huge amount, but we are, you know, it's a travesty uh, uh, when you when you have, uh, you know, food like this that is most definitely some of the best in the world that could be consumed is ready to be consumed. Uh, but because we have closed the door on every Avenue, except this one Avenue to get these birds to market, uh, we ended up seeing them euthanized by the hundreds of thousands or millions. And it's, uh, uh, you know, it, it is a travesty, but at the same time, I'm thinking that maybe the silver lining to this whole thing is it's going to force a lot of people to go back and say, Hey, maybe we don't close the door on this Avenue. Maybe this uh, should always be an Avenue because, you know, People need, you know, good, clean, safe, cheap calories. That's one of the greatest benefits to living in this country is uh, the fact that we spend so much of our disposable income on food as opposed to so many other countries. Uh, that's a great benefit. Uh, but at the same time, I think that you're starting to see a lot of rumblings on social media and around the coffee table uh, where people are saying, hey, you know, what about the small guy? What about the medium producer? And and should we not, you know, remove some of these hurdles to make sure that in a time like this, these folks can get to market um, and have access to that? So it, it is a downside, but I think there's some good things possibly coming. There was a story I heard, I guess, I think it was probably from an NPR uh, uh, program a couple years ago that, I don't know, 100 years ago, probably before, the, I think it was before the Great Depression, they were trying to figure out a way to get more protein into Americans' diet. And the plan that went actually all the way to congress and was about to be approved before uh, uh the maybe it's the depression or maybe it was the beginning of world war ii but the plan was to bring in hippopotamuses to bring in hippos farm them wow. in uh florida <laughs> and, wow right and, and if you think about it like why don't we eat hippos it's like right. right there's no reason it's just that we just didn't farm them but like what's the difference between a hippo and a cow really it's you know i, I don't know except one yeah. can get really really big and one gets like enormously big but we there's always been this uh this need at a you know a civilizational level to provide that protein element in everybody's diets and uh that's i think that's when i look at this story that's the thing that concerns me is that if this system breaks down and if we're already having to slaughter even though it's one percent one and a half percent and when you look at it in that context it's not huge but um it, it's still one and a half million chickens right that's still a lot right. and we're wasting that protein uh that you know, a hundred years ago, we were thinking as, at a societal level, oh my gosh, what are we going to do to get protein into people's diets? That's the scary thing. And I think fear drives a lot of these articles. 
Well, of course they do because it's media. And if you're not afraid, then media is not doing its job. So like that's the that's the fear that it's it's indicative of a larger breakdown. So I'll ask you just point blank. Is it breaking down? Is the system breaking down? I don't believe that it's breaking down in the sense that we're going to see um, that we're going to see any you know mass shortages. I do believe that the bright side is that it is highlighting the fact that this machine doesn't run on anything but premium fuel. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be times in the future, just like in the past of our parents and grandparents, where we're not always going to have access to that premium fuel. Uh, and so we've got to build a system that not only works under the best of times, but the worst of times. And that's not what we have currently. Um, you know, when you when you see, you know, everybody is out there seeing the news and they're seeing like this story um, to where these animals are being euthanized, yet they're going to the supermarket and they're not seeing a lot of variety. They're seeing inflated prices and whatnot. Uh, there is such a breakdown there. Uh, but again, it's, uh, you know, the silver lining is that I think a lot of people that in the past have been able to spend a very little amount of their hard earned money on good food. Uh, you know, this has been a wake up call. And I think that like a lot of things in our society, uh, even past COVID, uh, we're all going to be saying, "Okay, guys, this is great under those good times, but we need to we need to look at this again a little further." And so, uh, I'm optimistic that we're going to see some real reforms come out of this, and it's going to benefit those family farms, and also put a lot more of farmland and production back into the hands of the small guys uh, who today the doors closed on. I mean, if I wanted to raise 20 pigs and take them to market, there's very few slaughterhouses that will take such a small amount of animals. Uh, like our parents and grandparents had access to because uh, the government at all levels has made it, you know, has put the the burdensome regulations in front of them uh, to where they have to compete with these big guys. And if you're, you know, a guy wanting to employ two of your neighbors and slaughter five hogs a day, uh, you can't afford to pay a USDA inspector to be at your place, uh, provide him with a, you know, his own restroom and all these other kind of weird laws. Uh, you know, that just doesn't make sense for the small guy, but I'm, I'm optimistic that we're going to see us going back to some of that. And that's going to be a good thing for everyone. It's actually, it's funny. You mentioned that, that, that is what my in-laws did. And they had to, I think they had a choice of like two, uh, what do they call them? Abattoirs or whatever, these slaughterhouses around the state that they could take their hogs to. And that was it. And if, yeah, and and at one of them, at one point, I think they, this was years ago and they, they were in the middle of, uh, you know, doing a run and, uh, they, you know, didn't kill the pig all the way, right? The, and so yeah. everything got shut down, and then nobody could get anything through the system for days until the uh, the regulators came in and made sure that everything was back up to snuff. Simply because it took like two shots to kill the pig versus one, <laughs> like that's yeah, yeah. Uh, something like that. Yeah, and, and you know, you look at the USDA inspected plants where you know the federal law is that you have to have one of these inspectors at your facility during the time that you're killing and processing. Well, that's real easy. If you're a chicken processing plant processing 300,000 birds a day, that's you're spreading out that $70,000 a year salary over, you know, 2 million birds a week. That's pretty easy. I mean, you don't even notice that at the counter, Uh, but you get a a processing plant that wants to kill 200 birds a day. They can't pay that guy 70 Mm -hmm. grand to to sit in there and to, uh, to monitor that. So, We've got to get back to some common sense at all levels of government that says, okay, everything is not created equal in the sense that we need safety. That's the most beautiful thing about the, uh, the American farm scene is that we are cutting edge, not only on production, on return on investment, feed conversion, uh, acres of production, all of these types of things. But we've, we've gotten so efficient that we only let the folks 
play that are driving those Ferraris and Lamborghinis. And the folks like, uh, you know, and a lot of these are owned by, you know, multinational corporations, which is fine. I mean, that is what it is. And that's for another conversation uh, and another show altogether. However, you know, the one the one group that's not going to offshore is Tom, your next door neighbor who wants to race some animals and take them to market. And two, the supply chain is a lot easier. If you've got someone within a couple of miles of your family's home, it's got, you know, walk-in coolers and chest freezers where they're selling all types of, of protein. Uh, regardless of what happens in the economy, you've always went to Tom and you're going to go to Tom. And there's nothing that goes on in China or Wuhan or anywhere else that's going to make China, uh, Tom's coolers, you know, not be full of meat. So uh, we've, we've got to get back to a, a simpler way when we look at our food. And I'm not saying that efficiency is not good, uh, but we need some variety. And we've, we've managed to put ourselves in a very small box here uh, for this only to work when everything's perfect. What about the safety argument? Because I can hear the argument in my head that somebody would just, they would hear what you just said and they would say, well, we need to have, you know, a, a, a regulator there on premises the whole time to make sure that the food supply is safe and people don't get sick and die. Yeah, so there's there's that's a great great point, Pete. Uh, you know, whether we're talking about romaine lettuce or uh, some field greens, or whether we're talking about chicken that's being recalled, uh, nine times out of ten, any of your listeners can Google this. This is from these huge facilities, these huge farms. Uh, that frankly, it's harder to manage quality when you're doing so much quantity. Uh, you know, someone like Tom and his wife have a vested interest to you know make sure that everything they're touching and producing for their neighborhood is is to the utmost safety. Uh, safety is a very big deal. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, if you want to go for, you know, the USDA inspected stuff, then then I think everyone should have that right. And there's a, definitely a benefit to that. But at the same time, if uh, if you decided to get into the business, Pete, and I wanted to do business with you as my neighbor uh, to think that, you know, you've got to drive that animal 200 miles to be slaughtered. You've got to drive it to another facility. Here's the crazy thing. Sausage. And let's say you wanted to make hot dogs or bologna or smoke a ham. Uh, a lot of the, the kill facilities uh, around the country, particularly in North Carolina, you can't do both in the same facility because the slaughterhouse is in the business of slaughtering and cutting up the meat. But uh, when you want to put that into, say, a hot dog or links, that's considered a manufactured product where you're adding ingredients. Uh, and that's a manufacturing process and a whole nother uh, list of rules and laws and whatnot that most of these folks can't afford. So you theoretically could take a hog that I wanted to buy. I live next door to you. You drive that hog 100 miles, 150 miles to be slaughtered. And then I want some of that put into bologna. It has to go another 100 miles in the other direction uh, to a place uh, only to be brought back to me. So I've added so much cost to the price of that protein. That's another reason why you see the small and the middle, mid-sized guys who can't make it is because to comply with all the rules and laws, uh, they basically price themselves out of the market. And at the end of the day, uh, Michael and Pete should be able to do a little transaction without the government having to touch it 14 times. Uh, and and I'm hopeful that, that this COVID situation can highlight some of that. Is this what you're describing uh, with the, uh, the system in general, the running on the high octane? Is this what's called the just-in-time process? It is. It is. So, yes, absolutely. So, uh, case in point, you know, I'm a big poultry farm. Uh, I have 80,000 chicks delivered today. Uh, I know I know before they're ever delivered that they're going to be delivered today, that they're going to be picked up uh, in, you know, 62 days. Uh, and 
by nightfall of that day, they're going to be flash frozen and put into the, you know, put into the system. And so any, any hiccup in that not only throws off mine, uh, but the, you know, 500,000 birds a day that are being, so it's a domino effect that literally uh, the first three dominoes fall and there's no, there's no stopping it. Uh, it's, it's a chain effect. So the only way you can't backlog it, you can't put a live animal on ice or free, you know, just sort of stop time. Uh, so you have this domino effect where the only way to keep the system unclogged and to prevent the log jam is just to euthanize them and destroy them. Uh, and so we're living by the skin of our teeth. We're hyper efficient, which is all a, you know, the efficiency part is that's a wonderful thing about living in the year 2020. The downside is uh, that we've left no room for error. Uh, and we literally, it's, you know, pardon the pun, but it's feast or famine. It's either everything works perfectly and we get cheap protein or one little thing happens and all of a sudden there's scarcity. And that's, uh, you know, in today's political, political environment, et cetera, around the world, uh, I just don't li- like living on those kind of margins. Mm-hmm. My guest is Michael Hardin. He's the Director of Agricultural Studies and Outreach at the Civitas Institute, ncivitas.org. Um, and so you mentioned, uh, you know, one one hiccup or one thing goes wrong. And in this case, the one thing that's gone wrong is a whole bunch of people getting sick from COVID-19 at these meat processing facilities. So what is it about these facilities uh, that uh, we're seeing these outbreaks occur. It's not like these are congregate living facilities like uh, nursing homes and uh, long-term care facilities. So w- what's the deal with the meat processors? It is, um, it's closed quarters. Uh, it's closed quarters. It's very damp. Uh, I would say the humidity in a lot of these facilities is, you know, uh, for good reason. They're, they're keeping the floors cleaned off. They're washing something, you know, washing equipment every shift, if not more often. So it's a very humid environment. Uh, you know, I'm not a doctor, but, uh, if I were a virus, I think it'd be the optimal environment. Uh, but you know, that goes back to, uh, you know, it's against the law to have a, uh, like if I wanted to, you know, butcher and kill, uh, 20,000 birds on my farm a year, uh, again, I have to, I have to create that type of environment. I can't do like our parents and grandparents and, and butcher them, uh, you know, outside in an open air environment, which you're starting to see take off around the country. Certain States, hmm. uh, are allowing this and it's, uh, it's a pretty progressive way of thinking, but you know, the sunshine, uh, growing up farming, uh, I've always known that sunshine is the best way to, uh, uh, to clean practically anything. And so, uh, you know, butchering chickens, outside on a pretty sunny day, uh, taking them directly from butcher table to uh, an ice bath to get their core temperature down uh, is the way to go. And frankly, it's the way that most of the world operates in a way that our ancestors have done it for thousands of years. It's only in this last hundred years that we've gotten a little too smart for our britches, thinking that everything <laughs> has to be sterile and, you know, uh, shiny and all of this. And again, there's there's a lot of benefit to that. But it. Uh, uh, but it also, you know, is a reason why, you know, and again, another conversation, but another reason why uh, you have some of the recalls that you do is, be, you know, you end up having one little slip up and you have a facility that butchered a half a million birds that day. Then it's a lot different than having a slip up where you're doing 100 or 200. Yeah, it's it's funny. You mentioned the, uh, you know, shiny facilities that I was at a um I was with my in-laws. We were at some sort of a, a, a trade show or fair or something like that, and I was helping them out, you know, grilling some of their hot dogs up. And um, and a fellow came over, and he was interested in the product, and they were talking with him. And 
they were, you know, uh, you know, no antibiotics, you know, you know, the hormone, none of that stuff, you know, organic and, and uh, pasture raised pigs. And they um, but this fellow came over and he started talking to them. And at one point, very proudly, he said that uh, his friend raised all of these pigs and they never touched the mud. They were all yeah. just in like these like graded right. cages or something and uh, yeah. like suspended up off of the ground or something. And so like they never, their hoofs never touched the ground. And he, and he, and he said that like with pride, like this is a good thing. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I thought that was sad. <laughs> yeah. And it, and so you bring up a man, what a great point. Um, it turns out that, uh, you know, you're starting to see grass fed beef and uh, pasture raised uh, poultry and pork and stuff really take off because a lot of, folks now are starting to study that and they're seeing that you know it turns out that animals that get to see the sunshine and feel the breeze and and uh you know eat certain minerals out of the ground and eat the carotenes in the grass and stuff they're healthier and frankly they don't need antibiotics and hormones uh because they're you know uh i don't know if you've ever been around a a farm animal or something but there's a there's a there's a sense that and there the the proof is there that a, a lot of times animals know what they need and they'll oh, yeah. eat that you know they're, they've got a salt block or a mineral block and if their body's deficient in something they'll eat it well if they're you know living on a concrete pad with only one thing in front of them they can't do that and which means that humans have to intervene and and you know inject a lot of things into them and um but it you know again we've just gotten so smart uh that i think sometimes we're we're dumb uh, <laughs> and that's a that's a that's a prime example to where uh uh, there's a there's a great argument to be made for that. But, you know, the, the, the greatest thing about this, Pete, is you're starting, you know, for for a generation now, we've started to see a lot of people be concerned about a lot of these aspects. And I'm a free market guy. I'm a I'm a free market guy at heart. That's a lot of what drives the way that I engage on things. And so I understand the you know billions of people that are in the world and that, you know, uh, it's not going to happen overnight. So there's a lot of need for a lot of diversity in food production and whatnot. So I'm not, I'm not one that says, Hey, we shouldn't do this or we shouldn't do that. The biggest problem with the system today, uh, is that we tell the other guys that they can't. Mm -hmm. And so we only allow this one guy onto the shelf. And so, uh, you know, just like with small producers, whether it be, you know, vegetables or dairy products or meat, I think what we need to do is to, uh, remove a lot of these barriers that aren't in the name of safety. They're in the name of protectionism. They were passed under big lobbying budgets from competition. Uh, and we need to be able to say, okay, if this is safe food, let's put it on the shelf and let's let the consumers decide what they want. Um, you know, I produce chicken and pork and stuff, and, and we do a little bit of selling. And I tell you, the amount that we sell our pork for is multiples of yeah. what you would buy at the grocery store. But there's a segment of society that, you know, wants to do that and they want to do it knowing exactly what they're consuming. And I'm not going to bash the other guy. There's a there's a place for that. And, and there's a lot of great, great folks, particularly in North Carolina, uh, that are providing for their families and their communities producing that way. And I'm not you know, I'm not one to say that anyone should be uh, not allowed in the market. But uh, we need to make sure that the small guy has access and put him on the shelf. And if the consumers don't want it, I can assure you he won't be there. Uh, a month later. Yeah. Uh, but that's that's where we got to get. Well, it's it's an all of the above 
rather than an either or. Um, That's right. Yeah, it's it's like zoning. It really, it's like all of these things. Is I always feel like people are trying to force me to make a decision between two options when I would just prefer to let everybody decide for themselves and just leave the options open. Just okay. That's- you, yeah, you want to do that? Do that. If you don't want to do that, then there's this other thing. We don't need to ban the other one just because you like one, <laughs> not. That's exactly. That's that's exactly that's exactly right. And I think that uh, I think we're heading in that direction. Uh, that's one of the things. Uh, one of the things that at Civitas we're going to be working hard to do. As you know, we're always fighting. Uh, I like to think of of Civitas as the lobbyist for the taxpayer. When when the taxpayer doesn't have a lobbyist in these meetings, uh, that's what Civitas is there doing. Uh, and the, the, the idea that we're now doing that uh, in the production of food and fiber in the state of North Carolina and eventually maybe beyond uh, is a very exciting thing. And I think that everyone's going to be better off for it. Uh, I just uh, I look forward next time I see you. I want to try some of those in-laws hot dogs. Well, they, they they couldn't make a go of it. They tried for about five years and they got squeezed out. Yeah. 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 And, and, you know, and, you know, the uh, when you look at meat, meat packing. Uh, I think uh, the latest I saw was like four major conglomerates uh, control like 98% of the of the meat packing in this country. Uh, I'm starting to see a lot of things on social media about country of origin labeling uh, for meat and and that sort of thing. And now today you're you know there's a big national fight going on about you know lab grown meat, petri dish meat, <laughs> and uh, whether or not they should even have to disclose if that was grown in a laboratory or grown on an animal. Uh, I think that, again, we're becoming so efficient, we're becoming so smart that the consumer's waking up saying, okay, you're telling me that I can be consuming something and A, not know where it's from, but B, not even know if it came from a real animal. Um, I think that's scary stuff. It's stuff that 20 years ago I wouldn't have predicted that uh, would be a road we were heading down. But uh, like a lot of things in this great country, uh, at some point the folks have enough and they start showing up with, you know, pitchforks and rakes, and uh, <laughs> and usually something very, very good comes out of that. All right. Um, thank you very much for your time, Michael Hardin, the Director of Agricultural Studies and Outreach at the Civitas Institute. You can uh, check him out at ncivitas.org. Uh, I appreciate your time, sir. Uh, nice to meet you. Hey, Pete, same here. Thank you for what you do. God bless you. And uh, if I can ever be of service or the folks at Civitas, just let us know. Yep, will do. Are you prepared for a disaster? Do you need some advice on how to be prepared for one? Are you looking for military surplus that's real? Well, for more than three decades, the answer has been Old Grouch's Military Surplus in downtown Clyde. It is an old-school traditional store. It's got a mix of modern and vintage items. See my friend Tim. He's going to hook you up. He gets new stuff in all the time. It's American-made because it's real military surplus. Camo, shirts, hats, customized dog tags, gear, Old Grouch is on Main Street, downtown Clyde, across the street from the anti-aircraft gun and at oldgrouch.com. Also, this show is made possible by Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team. Her phone number is 333-4483. Her website is mountainhomehunt.com. I have had good realtors. I've had experience with not-so-good ones. Rowena and her team, they're good ones. They're great ones, actually. They outsell 99% of the real estate agents in the entire state. Okay, call the only agent that I would call if I'm looking for a house or if I'm looking to sell my house. Call Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team, 333-4483, mountainhomehunt.com, and start packing. And finally, the show is also made possible by Schaefer Smith. Have you seen the logo of the Pete Callender show? He did that. If you're trying to set up your website, maybe you need a logo. Call my friend Schaefer Smith at Schaefer Smith Design. He can help you with logos, graphics, 
photos, an online store, search engine optimization, website maintenance, and security. He does this for professional services, corporations, small businesses, entrepreneurs. If you know now the importance of having a good functional website, get in touch with Schaefer Smith. Make your site look professional, user-friendly for both your customers and you so you can uh, navigate it and fix it and adapt to whatever the market demands. SchaeferSmith.com. That's SchaeferSmith.com. All right, yesterday I brought you some research, some data from the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, or FreeOp, FreeOp.org. That's F-R-E-O-P-P.org. And North Carolina's COVID deaths, two-thirds of them are at nursing homes. That is higher than the national average. 42%, according to FreeOp, 42% of U.S. COVID-19 deaths have occurred in nursing homes and assisted living facilities. So we are above... In North Carolina, we are above that national stat. Um, This stat, the death rate, this is the important stat. And I mentioned this yesterday, and I want to bring to you some research from and analysis from a fellow named Gregory Van Kipnis, who is chairman of the board of the American Institute for Economic Research. He was president and CEO of Invictus Partners, a statistical arbitrage hedge fund manager for a decade. Uh, Prior to that, he was EVP at Jeffries and Company. He was in charge of proprietary trading. Uh, So this is a financial guy, right? Numbers guy, uh, but he's into the data side of things. And so he, uh, he, that's, that's his approach. Okay. He's coming at it from that approach, but he's a numbers guy. He says, in the early days, we got caught in a squeeze of conflicting information. So was this, uh, you know, some sort of bioweapon that was released by China, gone rogue and destined to indiscriminately wipe out young and old and everybody? And um, or was it a, just a bad flu? Was it an, a really bad flu? After all, initial information showed that the victims were concentrated in a nursing home in Kirkland, Washington. No cases were reported amongst the homeless on the West Coast streets, no deaths among kids, and in the closed world of cruise liners and later a military ship, there were a lot of early cases and some deaths. As time passed, though, there was very little more bad news. And he says we should have been suspicious of the data. We were mainly focused on the case fatality rate, the CFR, case fatality rate, uh, the deaths as a percentage of diagnosed cases. Okay, uh, this is all right. So you get like a, a you know a thousand diagnosed cases, ten uh, deaths out of that, and that would be what one percent, right? So that would be the CFR, uh, and those were really high. The CFR was really high uh, because why we weren't getting a lot of people tested at the early stages, right? So the CFR was very high, and that freaked everybody out. Oh my gosh, if you get this, like you're going to die, it's almost a hundred percent, right? So. We were also worried about another stat called the IFR, the infection fatality rate. But there's too little data and too little testing available to have any idea how many people were or ultimately would become infected. Right? This was always a big blind spot in the data. But the concepts, the CFR, case fatality rate, and the IFR, the infection fatality rate, are not the most important strategic measures of the severity of the disease. It's the death rate. Properly defined and understood, the death rate should matter for long-term policymakers, right? Why? Because there's a simple question. What is the relevant death rate due to COVID-19? So 
Uh, he's, he, he runs through this. He says, let's, let's start with a brain teaser. It, it, it will awaken this part of our brain that does the math, okay? Um, so when is 1.7% greater than 98.3%? When is 1.7 greater than 98.3? In the bizarro world of COVID-19 reporting, that is the case. 1.7% is greater than 98.3%. Why is he saying this? Because the 1.7%, you know what that is? That's the group of the population where um, people are in nursing homes. 1.7% of the population in the United States resides in long-term medical care facilities. 5.7 million people. 1.7% of the population is greater than 98.3, the rest, okay? What he's saying is numerically a death is a death, but from a policy point of view, to be blunt about it, not all deaths are the same. Not all deaths are the same. Um, the residents of these long-term care facilities accounted for 53% of all COVID-19 deaths. The rest of the country, 98.3%, have experienced about 34,600 or 47% of the nation's total deaths. You see what I mean? The, the total deaths, if you look at the total deaths, it's about even between people living in long-term care facilities and people who don't. It's about even. But the people who live in long-term care facilities is, a such, is such a tiny, tiny fraction of the population. That means the death rate expressed as a percent of those living in medical care institutions is 0.682%, more than 50 times the death rate of the rest of the population, which is 0012 the death rate for the overall population, so you put everybody together, is 0.022. So we have a COVID-19 problem, but we have an even greater and more serious long-term care medical facility problem that's clouding our understanding of the contagion and therefore what our best public health policies should be. Shutting down the economy, uh, the world wherein the 98.3% live and prosper, was too draconian. The feared overloading of the hospital system with emergency patients, which was short-lived, was disproportionately coming from the residents of the long-term care facilities, not the general public. That's why they got overloaded. The data may have been there all along, but they were not properly collected, cataloged, or analyzed. At this point, he says, we do not know what the ultimate count of deaths and the death rate will be. We don't. But what we have at hand are statistics that are very indicative and telling of the gross misunderstanding that the public and the federal and the state local decision makers have been working with uh, to base their uh, decisions. He also takes a look at this question. I've heard this a lot. You have too, I'm sure. Um, <clears throat> what about the flu and pneumonia? Is this, this is basically, you know, just as bad. Is it? What about the flu and pneumonia death rates? Look at earlier years. I'm not going to go over all of his numbers here. I'm not going to even, well, I'll give you a couple at the very end here because it's his conclusion. Um, the overall COVID-19 death rate is slightly worse than the flu. Okay, it is. It's worse than the flu. The death rate in a prior year was 0.022%. Um, that's COVID and the flu was 0.017. So 022, 017. So it's a little bit worse. Um, as a percentage. However, for people living in nursing homes, it's way worse. 
way worse than the flu. See, this is why everybody, this is how everybody gets to cherry pick the data for their Facebook memes, you know? Um, this is how everybody can find data that supports what they're saying, what they, or they believe, right? Their prior belief that this is just nothing other than the flu. They'll go to that first number. See, it's just the flu. Right, but if you look at the nursing homes, the nursing homes, the death rate is 100 times greater than the flu or pneumonia, right? So when you look at how it rips through a nursing home and kills, you know, tens of thousands of elderly patients that are, you know, stuck in these facilities, right, that's, that's a huge increase. That's way worse than the flu. It's 100 times greater than the flu and pneumonia um, for those under 75 and nearly four times greater than those over 75. Um, so he goes on to say then, by the way, I have this, uh, as always, in the prep sheet. This is called Focus on the COVID-19 Death Rate. Um, and it's uh, at AIER.org, AIER.org, which stands for the American Institute for Economic Research, AIER. So did we adopt the right policies? He says the carnage of COVID-19's concentration in elder care facilities and not the population at large. Uh, this is this is evident. This is obvious. The policies, the procedures, including the lockdowns, as well as the state of the art personal protection practices for these facilities. They should have been more thoroughly thought out based on useful data. By the way, this is how Governor Ron DeSantis down in Florida was able to uh, to keep COVID-19 largely in check despite the you know the massive amount of people living in these types of uh facilities in his state he immediately started you know locking down and securing the uh these facilities keep in mind 70% of the elder care facilities are for profit okay but they're not really free market enterprises enterprises free to do what they think is best that's not what they are they're for profit facilities and they're licensed and regulated though by several departments of health in all of the states, right, in the federal government and all of this, and they so basically do what the state tells them to do. The governors and the mayors and their medical and science advisors, they made the decision to pack all these people in, force them to house and retain infected and returning infected patients, right, like New York, where uh, now Governor Cuomo is like lying about his order. He's saying that the nursing homes, oh, yeah, they didn't have to take these patients back when, in fact, he ordered them to do so. Um they chose to divert PPE. These these elected officials, they chose to divert all of the PPE supplies to hospitals, not the elder care facilities. That was their choice, right? Send it all to the hospitals. This characterization is based on reports in the press, he says. Now, we hope there were some communities that did a better job. There's a reason to believe that is the case, because some assisted living facilities have reported zero deaths. As COVID-19 deaths mounted, though, not a word was officially spoken about where they were occurring. Fear was stoked that it was a population-wide epidemic we should all lock down. And what a costly mistake that was, a mistake that continues to this day. Governors and mayors with fresh data insights into the truth still want to be central planners. And they still want to determine which businesses can reopen and to what degree and who should still shelter in place, who should sh uh, socially distance. Right? They still want to uh, micromanage all of this. They send out teams to draw circles in the grass, tell you where you can sit. And then they put police monitors in all the parks to warn people, uh, make sure you sit in that circle. Ah, your foot's over the circle line. Get your foot back in that line. Sorry, they'd be doing it through a mask. Right. So um, 
he says this is madness. At this point, they're just imaginary prisons. But they are prisons. Prisons of the mind. In conclusion, he says, the relevant death rate for policy purposes has been obscured. The consequences has been inappropriate policies. And by the way, this is why I keep asking the questions that I keep asking uh, when it comes to North Carolina's uh, response and when the governor gets up and does his press conferences and they, they, they bring us like some limited data and I throw out these questions. This is what I've been driving at. You got to give us the context here. You're like, oh my gosh, we have our single day increase. Biggest single day increase in cases and hospitalizations. Okay, well, where are they coming from? Where, who, who are these people? I'm going to take a guess. They're mainly coming from, if not all coming from nursing homes, long-term care medical facilities, meat processing plants, maybe some jails, right? Because that's where all of the hot spots are. All of the outbreaks are occurring. He says, this has all resulted in a bizarro world of highly restricted commercial functioning and immense economic destruction alongside no evidence that lives were saved and growing evidence of second-tier loss of life resulting from the lockdown. On the Republican National Convention, <clears throat> this is what Lieutenant Governor, this is the big fight between uh, President Trump now and Governor Ray, uh, Roy Cooper, who uh, is like, you know, we're going to open the state as slowly as we need to to protect everybody based on the science and data. In fact, so am I. And Donald Trump's like, you better tell us what we're going to be allowed to do. I want to have a full crowd in there. I want a full convention in August. And Roy Cooper's like, well, we don't know. Not sure if that might happen. And then you got other cities that are like, we'll take you. Come on down to Jacksonville. Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest, a Republican, said, quote, if Governor Cooper wants the economic boom that a convention brings to a state, then he is responsible for putting together the rules to make that happen. With the governor's track record of changing the rules of the game, I agree with President Trump that assurances are needed from the Cooper administration within the week. His administration doesn't have a problem micromanaging the rest of our economy. So when other states in our region are clamoring for the opportunity to host the RNC, Governor Cooper is either not willing to lead or he doesn't want the convention in Charlotte. Yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of Democrats applying a lot of pressure to get the convention removed from uh, North Carolina. They do not want it here. So, yeah, I, I don't see a lot of downside for Governor Cooper here. I mean, he may take a couple of hits from some Republicans, but pff, who cares about them, right? <laughs> he's he's not, he, not going to get ripped apart by the political press. The media is not going to care. The media probably doesn't even want it here because they don't want to have to get assigned to go cover these maskless you know, knuckle-dragging, COVID-spewing right-wingers. They don't want to go down there and cover this convention. Send it somewhere else. Like, the national folks, they're going to they're gonna show up wherever the convention goes, right? But the local media, generally speaking, like the ones who were here in 2012, eh, that's all right, Democrats came, they had a great convention, I loved it, it was fun. I don't need that, for, I don't need to do that again. And, you know, it's really scary with all the COVID, so <clears throat> let's not let's not have it. You have a lot of activists that just don't want Trump here, didn't want him in the first place, didn't think we should have bid on it in the first place. So, yeah, there is pressure here. And to Dan Forrest's point about <clears throat> Roy Cooper changing his rules, this was phase two. This is what happened when Cooper told everybody what he was going to do with phase two. And then when he um, and so he had, you know, bars and um, breweries and gyms and fitness centers, and they were all getting ready to open they had you know spent money to 
uh, prepare the, their operations for you know the new normal, and then he comes out with his phase two order, and he just leaves them all twisting in the wind, saying you can't open for another five weeks, almost guaranteeing that they're going to be out of business. So yeah, he and and by the way, here's a great line here. <clears throat> Hang on a second. From yeah, Phil Berger. He put out a press release after um, the phase two reopen order was um, was issued. He said that he's glad the governor responded to, you know, the calls of senators, small business owners and unemployed workers to let him get back to work. He said, I asked Governor Cooper to reopen restaurants and personal care services last week. The governor said it wasn't safe to do so. But according to data for yesterday, when the governor began notifying people of his decision, North Carolina had more cases, more hospitalizations, and fewer tests performed than when I issued my call last week. So it seems strange that if it was unsafe to reopen last week, but it's safe to reopen now with worse numbers. This gets back to the central question of what strategy is driving the governor's actions. What goal does he think is achievable? He hasn't said. Unfortunately, Governor Cooper has hidden behind pre-screened virtual press briefings for the entirety of this emergency, making public accountability nearly impossible. Oh, yeah. He also, where is it, when he called the Council of State uh, meeting and set the agenda, these are all the state offices, Lieutenant Governor, Attorney General, Secretary of State, Ag Commissioner, Labor Commissioner, Insurance Commissioner, Treasurer, Auditor, right? All of those posts, they're all part of the Council of State. And Republicans... Uh, have more of those seats than Democrats. So the the Republicans control the Council of State. Those are all statewide elected positions. And Cooper did not put the topic of unemployment benefits on the agenda, right? He didn't put the he he didn't put it on the agenda for them to discuss. They just ran through a PowerPoint going over the numbers that they do every single day and you can find online. Again, we might want to entertain the idea that Roy Cooper just isn't very good at managing crises. Exhibit A, Hurricane Matthew. Exhibit B, the plague. Okay, just just an idea, just throwing it out there, just spitballing. All right, that's a wrap. Thanks a lot for listening to the show. Thank you very much for subscribing and becoming a patron. I really do appreciate the support. I'll talk to you later. Don't break anything while I'm gone.